This is the waves. 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 Welcome to the Waves Slate podcast about gender, feminism, and this week at least, women accused of unspeakable crimes against other women. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the things we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and a host of working, Slate's podcast about the creative process. And me, Seth Stevenson, a Slate senior writer. Today, we're going to be talking about the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, which you've been attending and writing spectacular dispatches from. Like many people, I've read what feels like endless stories about Maxwell and her longtime partner, Jeffrey Epstein. And I've listened to multiple podcasts and watched several TV series about the case. I'm low-key obsessed with it in a way that feels totally righteous and also makes me feel a bit queasy. This trial involves some of the richest and most privileged people in the world. And there seems to be some hope, at least, that if they've committed crimes, justice will be done. But it's ultimately about the sexual abuse and exploitation of underage girls. And I have conflicted feelings about a woman being held accountable for the alleged terrible behavior of a whole bunch of men. I want you to help me figure out that particular and peculiar bolus of emotions. And I'm curious why you wanted to cover the trial. Just on a personal level, I've had an interest in trials for a long time because when I was in my early 20s, I was a juror on a murder trial in Washington, D.C., and it was a really awful experience in a lot of ways, but also very interesting. And ever since then, I've wanted to understand more about how trials work and how they do and do not serve justice. And so I've covered a lot of them as a journalist. And with this particular one, I think my interest was similar to what you described and, and what a lot of people have said, wanting to understand more about Jeffrey Epstein and this horrific mystery around him and hoping that the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell will uncover some of the secrets hidden there. I have to just mention that, Seth, you wrote an amazing piece about that trial that you served on in your 20s. We'll put a link to that story in our show notes. You've been going to court now for a couple of weeks. Your first dispatch began with a lovely reflection on how you felt at the start of some of those other high-profile legal proceedings you've covered, how like when you show up for the trial of like Michael Jackson or Whitey Bulger or Zilkar Sinev, there's a kind of frisson that's partly about the defendant's celebrity or notoriety, but it's also about the possibility of justice being served. Usually, though, a sad banality sets in after a few weeks in a courthouse. Has that started to happen yet? I think that's definitely happened at this point. The prosecution has rested. We're waiting for the defense to start its case. And I think going into the trial, a lot of the media coverage and the public interest was about these questions about Jeffrey Epstein and how he got his money and whether any of his very famous male friends like Bill Clinton or Prince Andrew would get connected to these crimes. And what the trial's actually been about has been listening to four female accusers tell their stories about being sexually abused and the stories aren't really about famous people or about jet-setting luxury lifestyles. They're just about disgusting, repulsive things that these women allege that that Jeffrey Epstein, with the help of Ghislaine Maxwell, made happen. And 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 they're the way they describe them, it's all very creepy and squalid and not, you know, exciting and glamorous. And 
I think the questions coming out of the trial, no matter what happens, whether Ghislaine Maxwell is found guilty or not, the questions are going to be about the things that got left unsaid and the people who weren't present at the trial and emerged unscathed from this and, and the justice that wasn't served. Wow. We are going to take a break right now, but when we come back, we'll talk about what's actually going on in the Thurgood Marshall Federal Courthouse. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. I want to take a second right here to welcome all our new listeners and our old ones too. We haven't forgotten about you. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're there, you can check out our other episodes like last week's discussion of how we got to the verge of losing the right to abortion and what the fight ahead might look like. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So before we get to the particular challenges of bringing rich and well-connected people to trial, I think it would be useful for you to address a couple of questions about the specifics of what's going on. First, I would love for you to say what Ghislaine Maxwell is accused of for obvious reasons, because it takes up a lot of space, I think, in written stories and in broadcast you know, news pieces. We tend to just kind of summarize it just in like four or five words. But I would love for you to just say, what are the counts and what are the possible consequences if she's found guilty? Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about what she's actually being charged with here. So it's one count of enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. And there's a maximum sentence of five years in prison for that. One count of conspiracy to entice a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. And that's got a maximum sentence of five years. One count of transporting a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. There's a maximum sentence of 10 years for that. One count of conspiracy to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. And that conspiracy, we imagine, would be with Jeffrey Epstein, which carries a maximum sentence of five years. And then she had been charged with two counts of perjury um, based on things she said in a previous deposition. Um, they've actually separated those counts out now for, I think, a separate proceeding. So that's not part of this, even though it was part of her original charges. And this is a jury trial, right? It is. It's at the Southern District of New York Courthouse in Lower Manhattan. And there are 12 jurors who will decide the fate of Ghislaine Maxwell. There are some alternate jurors. And I think we already had one we had one juror drop out, but there are a few alternates in case one of the main 12 jurors needs to drop out at some point. And in terms of seeing the jurors, I catch glimpses of them as they enter the courtroom. I'm watching a closed circuit feed. I haven't been in the actual courtroom yet. It's tough to get in there. I'm hoping to get in there at some point. Um, when they come into the courtroom, I catch them on the camera for a second so I can see their faces. Um, and I've actually seen a few of them in the security line with me going into the courthouse on a couple of days, but I can't see how they're reacting in the moment to testimony or whether they're looking at Ghislaine or, or, or what they're doing sort of as the trial's going on. Can you give us a sense of the main players in the courtroom? Like, who are the prosecution team? 
And what kind of strategy are they using to convince the jurors of Gillian Maxwell's guilt? Three of the four of them are women. Um, one of them is Maureen Comey, who is James Comey, famous former FBI director's daughter. And of course, um, a lot of the conspiracy-minded people who are interested in this case, of which there are many, somehow factor in the fact that there's a connection to James Comey here. I'm not exactly sure how that <laughs> really matters, but that it's there. Um, the way that they've presented the case, and as I said, they've rested now, so they have presented their case, it centers on these four accusers who have told stories in which Glenn Maxwell lures them in and grooms them so that they can then be sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein. And in addition to the uh, accuser's testimony, um, they've got some corroborating evidence, flight logs from Jeffrey Epstein's private jets on which these accusers have traveled when they were teenagers, um, FedEx records. One, one accuser said that Jeffrey Epstein sent her some lingerie when she was 14 years old, and, and there's a FedEx record of, of a package going to her in, in, in that time frame. There are some phone messages with these accusers' names on them calling Jeffrey Epstein's house, and then there are some corroborating witnesses, people who these accusers spoke to contemporaneously about what had happened to some extent. And, and then maybe the most solid piece of corroborating evidence is is one of the accusers, Annie Farmer, the only accuser who's using her full real name. She wrote a journal entry at the time when she was 16 years old, when when the things she's talking about happened. And that journal entry is is really disturbing, actually. And, and it was read aloud, a lot of it in court. And that's probably the heaviest piece of corroborating material that the prosecution has presented. Now, the charges they have to make stick, the ones that you described a while ago, you know, this is conspiracy, tr transporting, they're, it's kind of hard to prove or tricky to prove or to persuade the jury that Gillian Maxwell was actively involved in victimizing minors. I know this is a really hard question, but do you sense that they've had success thus far? I think they've had a ton of success portraying Ghislaine Maxwell as a terrible person. I think she has come off as just a horrible person. They've had people like staff at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion in Palm Beach, people who aren't accused of being complicit in this, but who, who worked at the mansion and saw Ghislaine describe how she was. And, and, and just in terms of the portrait that's emerged of her, it's, 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 she just seems like a terrible person, if you, if you believe what you're hearing. Um, and I, my guess is, at this point, the jury will be looking to to punish her be because of how she comes off and the way that these victims, these accusers, have talked about what she did. And I, th my feeling is they are very credible. My guess, we have no idea what the jury is thinking, but my guess is that they will find them credible. And if they do, they will be looking to punish Ghislaine Maxwell for that behavior. The thornier question is when they go to deliberations and they get these complicated charges about transporting and enticing minors and conspiracies and the sort of more technical stuff, when they sit down and try to figure out what precisely she's guilty of and how it lines up with these very technical charges, that's where it, it, you know, it could get a little thornier. Yeah, no kidding. What about the defense team? Who are they and what do we know so far about how they're going to try to persuade the jury to reject the charges? So they're older than the prosecution team. They're more experienced. They're led by Bobby Sternheim. Um, she is a woman who, to me, seems like she sort of stepped out of the pages of a 1987 edition of the New York Post. Uh, she's got this New York accent and New York manner that seem to me slightly dated, maybe. She wears 
big double-breasted tweedy blazers with with these sort of dramatic collar points curling out of them. She's got this swoop of gray hair and these huge glasses frames. She's she's just a, an interesting looking figure. Like I said, she she talks like New York Post writing. Like her her opening argument began with say, with something like ever since Eve was tempted with the apple, you know, women have been charged have been charged for the crimes of men and she said it in this very dramatic way and and later on she used the phrase a domicile of debauchery, you know, with this alliteration. She's a very colorful character. The other prosecutors aren't as colorful. There's Christian Everdell, um, was a former prosecutor who 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 brought down El Chapo, very professional, very smooth. Um, and then there are two others. Laura Menninger has done a lot of the questioning of victims, trying to tear apart victims' stories. Um, I would say she has a very tough manner. And it came out in court, not while the jury was there, but but there was some behind-the-scenes stuff where one of the accusers had said to a friend after she got cross-examined by Laura Menninger, Laura Menninger mentioned in court, this, this is all really inside baseball, but Laura Menninger said in court that the accuser had used a word that rhymes with front to describe Laura Menninger. And Laura Menninger took great offense at this, but I will say that she is definitely tough on her cross-examinations. I would say no one would question that. And then the final defense attorney is Jeffrey Pagliuca. And the main thing that people have noticed about him is he has twice now accidentally revealed the real names of accusers who have requested anonymity. And there's been a lot of anger and resentment from some of the people watching in the overflow rooms where I watch about the fact that he's revealed these names of women who have requested anonymity and been granted anonymity by the judge. In terms of how they're presenting the case, a lot of it is pretty typical kinds of attacks that you see on women who are alleging sexual abuse. So it's, oh, your memory is faulty. Oh, your lifestyle is questionable. You've used drugs. You're promiscuous, that kind of thing. And then the other parts here are they're trying to sort of suggest that these women have been manipulated into making these accusations by lawyers who are looking to file lawsuits and make money. And there is this fund of money from Jeffrey Epstein's estate for victims that that all of these accusers have applied to and received money from. And the defense is making a lot of hay of, of them receiving money for making accusations. I think in terms of their case, the most successful element of their case has just been that this is about Jeffrey Epstein. This is not about Ghislaine Maxwell and that the prosecution is trying to kind of graft Ghislaine Maxwell onto a trial about Jeffrey Epstein, that Ghislaine Maxwell is being kind of retconned into the story um, and that she wasn't really there. It's fascinating. I do want to talk a little bit more about that fund. We'll get to that after the break. But before then, just one last question. Jeffrey Epstein's dead. These young women, as you said, have apparently received compensation already from a fund that was set up to provide that. So What's the point of this prosecution? What have the young women who've testified so far said about that? I think everyone wishes that Jeffrey Epstein could be in this courtroom to face justice, but he's not. And he did have a large retinue of people who helped him, either by looking the other way or by sort of actively participating in this and, you know, luring people in, finding victims, helping him do this. And Ghislaine in particular, in my opinion, based on what I've seen in court, was clearly aware of what was happening and helped. That's my opinion. And she needs to be tried for that and face justice for that and have a jury render a verdict on that. And so that is what this is about, I think, in terms of 
when the victims have been asked by the prosecution, after you know, every time the defense goes to cross-examination, they question the, the victims, the accusers' motivations. And then the prosecution comes back up for redirect after the cross-examination. And in those redirects, I think with every accuser, they've said, you know, why are you here today? And, and they've all said, you know, because justice needs to be served, essentially. One of them, the quote was, you know, kind of looking over at Ghislaine Maxwell, what she did was wrong. And that is like the most basic thing that's at issue here. What she did was wrong. If you, if you believe these accusers, and I do, what she did was very wrong, and she needs to face justice for that. And whether these accusers have, you know, received funds, you know, from Jeffrey Epstein's estate, whether they file, filed previous lawsuits, none of that's at issue. This is about, this trial is about Ghislaine Maxwell and what she did. And, and whether it was, you know, worse or less worse than what Jeffrey Epstein did, it was still terrible. And in my opinion, she did it. And so, you know, that she's here to face justice for that. Indeed. Okay, actually, one more question before we get to the break. Maybe it's the Brit in me, but I am super curious about how the class aspects of the case are playing out in court. Ghislaine Maxwell is a mega rich, incredibly privileged, insanely well-connected woman, which of course has been great for all the people making documentaries about her because they can easily find photos and footage of her with literal royals and presidents and just about anybody who's ever attended a fancy New York party. And for the most part, the women who she's alleged to have groomed and exploited are from poor and generally troubled backgrounds. Uh, so how is that playing out in a New York courtroom? I mean, this is a city where rich and poor coexist more closely than just about anywhere else in the States. Has that really played out for you to see? Yeah, so there have been two kinds of accusers. The, the first two accusers came from s- sort of slightly worldly, in one case, fairly posh backgrounds. Um, they'd been around wealth, they'd been around fancy people, and it wasn't crazy that they would come into contact with the same sphere of people that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell would. But then there was this other side of this, where particularly this accuser who's only using her first name, Carolyn, who was from West Palm Beach, not Palm Beach Island, where Jeffrey Epstein's mansion is. And there was a, a corroborating witness who talked about the difference between West Palm Beach and Palm Beach Island. And West Palm Beach is much more modest circumstances. And she was in this group of high school kids driving around smoking pot. And suddenly they come into orbit with this rich guy over on Palm Beach Island who's giving out money if they'll just come over and give quote unquote massages. And it's it's clearly these rich people manipulating poor girls. And and we heard talk of, they haven't appeared at the trial, but we've heard talk of lots of these girls connected with this sort of West Palm Beach high school group who who are going to get, you know, hundreds of dollars from Jeffrey Epstein on a regular basis. Um, I think Carolyn, this this witness who came from more modest circumstances, might be more relatable to the jury. I'm I, I don't we don't know the jurors' backgrounds, but my guess is they're a lot closer to Carolyn's background than they are to, you know, Jeffrey Epstein worth, you know, more than $500 million or Ghislaine Maxwell growing up with, you know, a, a tabloid baron as a, as a father, you know. So I think the accuser named Carolyn, her testimony was very moving and you you could feel how victimized, how manipulated she was and, 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 and how getting these hundreds of dollars... It, 
you know, the, this world of rich people was so intimidating for her. We don't really know who the jurors relate to. We don't really know who the jurors are, but I, I would guess that that is a relatable story. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break here, but if you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you would subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear more from June and me on another topic, you should join Slate Plus so you can hear our Waves Plus segment, where this week June and I will try to figure out why we're so drawn to TV shows like The Bold Type and Younger about young women trying to make it in the world of New York media. Oh, hey, we have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for the first year. It's a great deal. Think of it like this. You pay $10 or $15 a month for your music and streaming subscriptions. With Slate Plus, for less than $4 a month, you can get... Member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like ours, as well as Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gabfest, Working, all of those. No ads on any of our podcasts and unlimited reading on the Slate site. And best of all, you'll be supporting our show and Slate's journalism. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash thewavesplus. Again, we're giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash the waves plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, we're back. Seth, let's get into some of the especially thorny questions in a very thorny subject. Do you think that as the defense has suggested, Ghislaine Maxwell is being served up as a scapegoat? Certainly the defense has suggested that. In their opening argument, they use the word scapegoat. They use the word stand-in, suggesting that you know Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein is the person who should be on trial and Ghislaine Maxwell is just a proxy for him. The prosecution objected each time they used words like that. Um, 
is she being served up as a scapegoat? Well, in one sense, certainly, yes. I was like, you know, we really would prefer at least additionally see Jeffrey Epstein on trial for what he did. But that doesn't change the fact that Ghislaine Maxwell was complicit in these crimes, in my opinion, based on the testimony these accusers have given. And if she was, she needs to be served justice. It's separate. I do think there is inevitably a sense that she is being punished in some sense for Jeffrey Epstein's crimes. I think that's true to an extent. And yet she is also, you know, I think guilty of of crimes. So we don't just let her skate simply because she wasn't, you know, the most culpable offender. You know, that's fair. I, I agree completely. But let's assume for the sake of argument that the accusations against her are true. If she procured and groomed, it was men who were sexually abusing and exploiting the women she found for them. Where's the justice in that scenario? Sure, if she did it, she deserves to be punished. But what about those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think she is a victim of sorts, probably. And certainly the defense is going to argue that she was a victim of sorts. I think she probably was manipulated by Jeffrey Epstein and probably was in, in, intimidated by his his power and connections to some extent. And I think he did coerce her and manipulate her and sort of in some ways force her to do things. That's not totally a defense. She was an adult at the time she did this. She made choices. You know, I, I, we'll see how, how if the defense argues that she was penned in by him in, in ways we haven't heard about yet. She did have agency here. There's actually only one man being accused so far, only Jeffrey Epstein. None of these other famous men have been accused yet. Um, and Jeffrey Epstein's dead. So, you know, in some senses, yes, I think she is a little bit of a stand-in for him. But she's also a stand-in and a scapegoat to the extent that she is those things for other women who have been named at this trial. Um, there have been some other adult women who've been talked about as also coercing these young girls of luring them and grooming them. And those women have not testified, have not been brought charges against um, as of yet. And there are also some other men involved here, like boyfriends of these girls who drove them to Jeffrey Epstein's house, sort of knowing what was going to happen. And then partaking in the money that came out of it. you know, In particular, um, the accuser, Carolyn, her boyfriend, Sean, testified. And he was really breezy in the way he talked about, like, yeah, I would drive her over there. She would go in for an hour. She'd come out with, you know, 300 bucks, 400 bucks. And then we would go buy drugs with it. You know, it was sort of suggest that he would encourage her to do this. And he would, they, you know, he would actually get called on his cell phone sometimes with requests from Jeffrey Epstein's house that Carolyn come over. And he would say, okay, Carolyn, let's go over there. He's not being tried. He's not being accused uh, accused of any crimes. But you know, it's 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 complicated stuff. And and the thing around Jeffrey Epstein, there was this whole pyramid of people who were helping this happen. And around these these victims, these girls, there were all these people who were either looking the other way, who were who had knowledge of you know to various degrees, and and kind of let it happen or helped it happen. Who who aren't on trial with Sean, this boyfriend. I mean, there are mitigating factors here. Sean was. 17 when he was sort of encouraging his 14-year-old girlfriend to go to Jeffrey Epstein's house and get money that they could both use to buy drugs. So, you know, yes, in a sense, he's facilitating this, but he's also underage. And then, you know, it's worth mentioning here, there were young women who were facilitating this stuff. So, you know, there was talk about a 17-year-old girl who was victimized by Jeffrey Epstein, who, and then Jeffrey Epstein asked her to bring in younger friends. He literally said, do you have any friends younger than you? That's what the testimony alleges. And and so the 17-year-old brought in a 14-year-old girl into the massage room and sort of facilitated 
victimizing her. It the whole thing is so screwed up. There's a lot of culpable parties, but some of them are, are were underage and and like a lot of mitigating factors. And it's I mean it's just a terrible, depressing, sad situation overall. In your dispatches, you've often noted that when the accusers testify, the defense team will bring up the amount of money they received from the compensation fund that was set up for Jeffrey Epstein's victims. And I have to admit that I don't quite understand what's going on with that line of attack. I mean, a court or some other official entity found that they were victims of a criminal behavior and established that they should be compensated for it. And sometimes this compensation has amounted to millions of dollars. So they've already received those funds. I don't get what the defense is trying to do by repeatedly bringing them up. Do you have a sense of it? Yeah. So, so all of these accusers uh, made applications to the, to the victim's compensation fund, which is a fund set up out of Jeffrey Epstein's estate. And it's paid them all, um, I believe, in excess of a million dollars each. One of them, I think, $5 million. Now, lawyers' fees come out of that. They don't receive the full amounts, but they ha- you know, they've gotten significant chunks of, of money. They already got that money. And in, in each, with each of the accusers, the prosecution has at some point asked them, do you have any financial stake in the outcome of this trial? And the answer is no, they don't. That money is theirs. And whether Ghislaine Maxwell goes free or is found guilty, it doesn't matter. That won't take that money away from them or give them any more money. What the defense is trying to do is, first of all, make it seem like these women came forward initially because of the lore of this money from the victim's compensation fund, that that's what motivated them to tell these stories in the first place, that they could get money from this victim's fund. And in one case, they even sort of suggested that the accuser didn't deserve the money, that 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 the story she told about sexual abuse wasn't strong enough, the abuse somehow wasn't terrible enough for her to deserve, you know, the $1.5 million she got from the fund, which was really gross to, to listen to, in my opinion. Um, that's one thing they're doing. The other thing they're doing, um, which is sort of slightly more legally oriented argument is to suggest that because these women made these sworn statements under penalty of perjury in their applications to the victims fund, where they said what happened to them, you know, on in sworn statements, if somehow it comes out later that those statements weren't the truth, they would, they would forfeit the money. And so what the defense is suggesting is they're locked into what they said when they applied to get this money. And they have to stick to that story, even if it wasn't true, even if that story somehow passed muster with the victim's compensation fund evaluators, but somehow there were elements of untruth to it. They're locked into the story now when they testify. And so they, they're not going to change the story, even if the story wasn't true. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, a, a, you know, a, a little two-step to try to, to try to show that, but that, that's sort of where they're, they're going with that. But I think the main thing is just trying to create this halo of gold digging around the accusers, that they were in it to, to get money from this fund, and that's really why they came forward and told these stories. Ugh, God. So this is a tricky one, but it's something that I have been feeling and, and just has been coming into my head ever since news of this case started to come out. So when I was growing up in Britain, perhaps the most notorious criminals, the most reviled, the people whose photos will be placed by many Brits in the dictionary next to the definition of evil, were Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, and especially Myra Hindley. In Canada, there's a similar kind of revulsion to the extent that there are limits on what can be said about them in the Canadian media, about the crimes of Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamulka. 
I bring those people up as examples of criminal couples where a woman has actively participated, sometimes enabled the sexual abuse, and in two of those cases, the murder of vulnerable young people. There's an enhanced sense of shock when women are accused of participating in this kind of crime. How is that playing out in the courtroom? The prosecution is definitely, understandably, emphasizing Ghislaine Maxwell's agency in all of this and suggesting that she made a choice to do this. And and the reason she did it, her motivation was Jeffrey Epstein's money and the, the lifestyle that she could live if she sort of glommed herself onto Jeffrey Epstein and accepted the terrible things that Jeffrey Epstein did in exchange for flying on his jets and living in his mansions and going to his island. And they showed bank statements in which Jeffrey Epstein gave Ghislaine Maxwell $23.5 million in cash after a lot of these things that people testified about happened. And the fact that Jeffrey Epstein bought her a $7.5 million helicopter, she, she flies helicopters, and just suggesting that she was in this for the, the lifestyle. They haven't tried to suggest that she was somehow excited or you know sexually excited about doing these things, but you could read that idea into some of the things that some of the accusers said, that that she was a, a willing participant, not just for the money it got her from Jeffrey Epstein, but because she she was excited by doing this. One of the accusers talked about Gillian Maxwell giving her a massage and asking her to take her clothes off and, you know, touching the tops of her breasts and and abusing her, being an abuser. Not just doing this because, oh, this is something I have to do so I can get Jeffrey Epstein's money, but sort of like actively participating in this. So we're not sure yet how the defense will portray Gillian Maxwell, but you know, as we said, they'll they'll almost certainly say that she was a victim uh, here of Jeffrey Epstein, just like everyone else was. They'll they'll almost certainly argue that, well, if you're going to hold her accountable for this, you need to hold the the driver, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's chauffeur who drove these girls to his house accountable. You need to hold the housekeeper accountable who looked the other way. You need, you need to hold the airplane, the jet pilots uh, uh, accountable who who flew these young women around, all that. They'll, they'll just, they'll say Gillian Maxwell is just one of many employees who are present for this. And they'll also throw everything else at the wall. They'll, you know, they'll say this didn't happen the way the accusers remember it happened. They'll say if it did happen, it was, it wasn't Gillian Maxwell doing it. It was Jeffrey Epstein doing it. The defense is certainly trying to separate Gillen Maxwell out from Jeffrey Epstein. The prosecution has been emphasizing that they were a couple and and putting up a lot of evidence, showing them hugging in pictures or having staff talk about how they, they were clearly romantically involved. They slept in the same bed and portraying them as a couple that did, that did these things together. I think in terms of like the revulsion at a woman doing these kinds of crimes, I think it's hard to know how the jury is looking at, at that, but I think one way we might, one tangible way we might see that play out is I think it's very unlikely that Gillian Maxwell will testify in her own defense. We've actually seen some defendants like Kyle Rittenhouse, like Elizabeth Holmes, testify in their defense. This is something that was very rare that that lately has been a legal strategy, um, and and people were wondering if maybe the defense would have her testify. I think it's extremely unlikely, and one reason is I think because of this sort of revulsion you're talking about at, at a woman participating in this kind of crime. And also, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell is, is, you know, almost 60 years old now and society, you know, society's judgment against an older woman who did these kinds of things. You can just imagine just sort of demographically sexism, ageism, and revulsion that a woman would do this all playing into how she reads on the stand. And I think that's one reason she won't be called. There are 
lots and lots and lots of really weird echoes in this case. But we do have to mention that Ghislaine Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, who was a larger-than-life, almost literally, British press baron who, like Jeffrey Epstein, died in cloudy circumstances. Anybody who's watched any of these documentaries or listened to these podcast series will be familiar with this. He also stole hundreds of millions of dollars from the pension funds of the companies he owned and controlled. And after his mysterious death, two of his sons were prosecuted effectively for his offenses. They were part of the conspiracy to defraud. How could they not have known what was going on was kind of the undertone of the prosecution. And they were acquitted. We don't have to get too deep into the Maxwelliana of it all, but it's hard not to think of so many of these parallels, right? Yeah, I mean, the the jury doesn't know about any of this background. It hasn't really come into the case at all. And unless they're doing internet research, which they're not supposed to be doing, they they don't they're not really aware of this. Getting into Ghislaine Maxwell's headspace is a complicated <laughs> no, and scary thing yeah. to do, yeah. but it is fascinating that she had this, her father was this larger-than-life benefactor who named his yacht after her, the Lady Ghislaine, and then he later died falling off that yacht in somewhat murky circumstances, and he dies in disgrace. And she very quickly, right around that time, the, the chronology isn't totally clear, but right around that time, she starts moving on to Jeffrey Epstein, who is this another shady, possibly fraudulent, larger-than-life benefactor who now has died in disgrace after, you know, Glenn was intimately connected with him. And it is it is really nuts to think about you. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, I know. It, it is <laughs> thinking about what, how she has lived, she has oriented her life around benefiting from having a lifestyle made possible by these shady men and 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 now here she is and and this and now she's really paying a, a a price for it um yeah i mean it's there is so much to say and think about in the background stuff but like the the thing is none of that really matters in the nuts and bolts of this trial which are about did these four young women get sexually abused in these squalid disgusting sordid ways and to get a glenn maxwell help that happen and that that wasn't happening on yachts, you know, in the Mediterranean. This was just happening in in gross massage rooms in Jeffrey Epstein's house. It's a little bit of a distraction. It's a fascinating distraction, but it's it, I I try not to get too far away from what really happened here, who the victims are, what Gillen Maxwell did or didn't do in relationship to these victims. I know. This is an impossible question. The defense hasn't even started yet. But at this stage in the trial, what's your sense of how it's going? Would you care to predict a verdict? I'm not a betting person, but uh, if you force me to wager right now, I would wager that she will be found guilty because I think the accusers were credible and I think the accumulation of their four stories, which were all very similar, they all, you know, a, a few of them talked about Gillen Maxwell first saying, why don't you massage Jeffrey Epstein's foot? That was how it began with, you know, and and the things she said and the way that she treated them, they're all, the stories echo each other. They, they, they're very, the accusers were, in my opinion, very credible. The defense did very little to poke holes in their actual stories. They found some, you know, a few inconsistent statements around the edges. They questioned their motivations, but they, they didn't really tear down the heart of their stories. So I think when the jury sits down, you know, however many weeks from now, when the, when the, after the closing arguments and, and deliberates and decides 
their vibe is, you know, they're going to have to, are they going to want to punish Gillen Maxwell? Are they going to feel that she's someone deserving of punishment? Right now, I would say they will, and they will look for ways to punish her. And so I think they will find her guilty. Um, but we still need to hear the defense case. We don't really know what to expect from that. We don't know if there are going to be any bombshells or anything that really reorients how we think about this. And then, you know, jury, it's a jury trial. Juries are completely unpredictable. There's a lot of personality dynamics in that jury room that we just don't know about. Who is leading the conversation? Who has credibility? Who is submerging their own thoughts because they're just going to join the herd? You know, it, and it only takes one juror to hang this. If someone is insistent enough, they could hang the jury. It's impossible to really know. But I, you know, my guess is that she will be convicted, you know, as, as things stand right now. When will the defense begin its case? The defense will start its case on December 16th, and they have listed 35 possible witnesses, which is more witnesses than the prosecution called. Um, if they call all of those witnesses, the, the trial will go on for quite some time. Um, it's unclear how many of those witnesses will actually be called. The original expectation for the trial was four to six weeks. It's gone two weeks at this point, um, and the prosecution has already rested somewhat ahead of schedule. So, you know, maybe sometime in January, we'll, we'll go into deliberations, but it's it's hard to know. Seth, this is a endlessly fascinating and also totally tragic case. Thank you so much for going to court so we don't have to and for uh, just sharing some more insight on it. Thank you, June. And I look forward to talking with you about silly TV shows instead of... I know, right? <laughs> exactly. We're not quite done yet. We do want to share some recommendations. Why don't you go first? What are you going to recommend to our listeners? I have not had a ton of time for cultural consumption because I have been heads down at this trial. And all day at the trial, I do not have internet access in the courtroom. I don't have a phone. They take your phone at the door. There's no internet. So I'm just all day without internet, which is actually kind of wonderful in certain ways. Anyway, <laughs> I have no time. But the one thing that I have made time for and been able to watch is, is Get Back, this Peter Jackson documentary about the Beatles putting together the Let It Be album, which I think a lot of people have watched and talked about. I'm probably late to talk about this, but I just have found it completely consuming. I watch it in like half hour bursts. And when I watch it that way, it's like the greatest reality television show ever made because it's 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 like it's like Big Brother in that there's these four people in a room together in the studio all day getting on each other's nerves. But except it's the Beatles. And then like every 15 minutes, they stop arguing with each other and go to their instruments and play these amazing Beatles songs live. The personalities of the four Beatles and the way they interact and the creative process, watching it unfold in real time and I just can't get enough of this. I finally finished it last night and I wish it, there were like another 800 hours of it, honestly. So that is my that is my recommendation. I've been on the fence about, I don't have Disney Plus. And I'm like, I don't want to sign up for another streaming service just to watch that show. But you've kind of persuaded me. I do want to take issue though with something that you said you described Get Back as the world's greatest uh, reality TV show. It cannot be because the show that I'm about to recommend holds that crown. The show I want to recommend is called The Antiques Road Trip. People are probably falling asleep just hearing that name. When I tweeted on Friday night that I had just discovered that the show is now on Amazon Prime Video, so it's now easy to find in the US, a friend in, in the UK wrote to me and said, June, are you okay? Are you being held hostage? Is that a coded message? Because that can't possibly be true. But I swear to you, the Antiques Road Trip, the trip is very important. 
it is so fantastic. It is a reality competition in which some antiquers, so like eminent experts in antiques, they two of them in in pre-COVID times at least, they drive around Britain in a kind of classic car. They stop off, they're given like 200 pounds, they have to buy some antiques. The end of the episode, there's an auction. You won't be surprised to hear that it's a contest is about who can make the biggest profit. It goes over five days. Uh, it's so great. And then there are these interstitial documentary little bits. There may be three, four, five minutes. There's two in every episode. And they are, I'm not kidding, the best documentaries I have ever seen. They're so good. I cannot say enough things. Some of the antiques people are really annoying. At least one of them is just so determined to become a superstar and he's so pathetic. So it's not. I'm not going to claim that Like I love them all. Some of them drive me absolutely up the wall. But hey, that's reality TV, right? The, the villains are the reason that you watch. I can't say enough about how much I love this show. Antiques Road Trip, now available in the US on Amazon Prime Video. You got to watch it, Seth. I loved Antiques Road Show and like learning the cultural histories of these objects they dig out of these thrift shops and, and stuff. And it's fascinating. And then you learn it's, oh my God, it's worth $75,000. What? But now you've got a travel element grafted onto this. If this trial ever ends, I'm going to watch this for sure. That is, in fact, our show for this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director, with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.